Welcome to another episode of Nerds Amalgamated. I'm the DJ, and with me today, I have the Professor. Hello. You're How's still it doing going? that B.T. Barnum thing, are you? Ah, oh, I, I, I love, I, I love a good entrance. <laughs> and it's good. Like, hey, at least, it, at, at least it, um, it's, it's, it makes it more entertaining. You had a fun week this week. Apart from the humidity, it hasn't been too bad. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, hello. I wonder how long this humidity is going to last, though. Until next year. We're going yeah. into summer now. Yeah, yeah. Although I hope we, although I've been hearing that we might get a couple of rainstorms now that we've entered the La Nina effect. Yeah, yeah, the usual summer storms. Oh, yeah. But they'll be a bit wetter than usual. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, uh, let's just hope it doesn't become a big problem like what's happening with eSports right now. Nah, uh, that one was okay. <laughs> we can do better though, DJ. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. So uh, you got a story about esports' latest problem? Yeah, they seem pretty endless. But to be fair, so does uh, like physical sport. All of this doping and cheating, and now we're finding out that esports is attracting problem gamblers. Ah oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Including uh, children. Oh, oh, the, that that's a very very interesting territory they've they've landed themselves in yeah so this article i've got has um statistics from the uk and it points out that the uh, average tennis play spectator is 61 and the average esports spectator is in their 20s oh so you've already got a, a much younger skewed um audience with less life experience to know if they're being taken for a ride and the um, so the Wimbledon's men's final last year had nine million viewers. Mm-hmm. The League of Legends World Championship had over a hundred million viewers with a peak of forty-four million. Whoa! Yeah, so it's a absolutely massive industry at the moment. I mean, and- now, I, I mean, it's true though. Like, it's true that it's it's a massive industry. But come on, nothing can beat like. But how much revenue does esports generally get? I mean, does it rival like? The amount of revenue, let's say, NFL gets? Um, I don't know how it compares to other um, sports bet um, revenue, but uh, the number they have here is that global esports betting will be worth $15 billion this year, Ooh. up from $6 billion in 2016, So, which is about when esports sort of came into public knowledge. Okay. I've, I've, I've got a report here. With the revenue, um, global esports revenues will grow to 1.1 billion in 2020, a year-on growth of 15.7 percent, up from 950.6 million. Interesting. Is what country is that for? Because those are very different numbers to what I have. This is from. Uh, this is read the report in Chinese. Um, oh, uh, that's gonna up. be hard. Yeah. Um, but the other facts they've got here, it's uh, in 2020, eight, 822.4 million in revenues or three quarters of the total market will come from media rights and sponsorships. Uh, globally, the total esports audience will grow up to 495 million in 2020, which is an increase of 11.7 million. Mobile esports enjoyed a huge spike in the past year with emerging markets from Southeast Asia, India, and Brazil. At the forefront. Okay. I'll just post the uh, here. So you've got uh, different numbers to what this article has. Yeah. But this article has a um, links to a BBC article saying that, uh, how many is it? The number of problem gamblers aged 11 to 16 has quadrupled to more than 50,000 in two years. 
So that's just in the UK. Mm -hmm. And that's, um, I think that's a problem. Oh, man. See, the biggest problem, I reckon, when it comes to gambling in um, esports will be the um, on the spot gamblers. Like, can you imagine, like, people um, betting going, like, okay, I want my esports player to, I, I bet you he'll take the. He'll take the wrong lane because I paid him like a lot of money, kind of thing. Oh, you mean match fixing? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Match fixing. Yeah, yeah. I'm that's not sure true. if that's ever happened in esports yet, but it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Uh, yes, actually, just this year in um, May, some Victorian men were uh, hit with corruption charges. So there is definitely uh, match fixing issues. Yeah, here we go. Um, spot. Here's the thing I was talking. Spot betting. So spot betting is when they see uh, sees gamblers taking their money on a minute of sporting encounters. Any any anything from exact timing on the first throw in during the football match to whether the first ball of the cricket uh, match will be a wide or a no ball. Oh, okay. So let's say, for example, like you and I were playing. Uh, you and I were gambling at a at a League of Legends tournament. And I say, like, okay, I bet you fifty bucks that um, this guy will take the wrong lane in a in, in a in a multiplayer scenario. He takes the wrong lane, and I I win money. So it's like on the spot betting. Yeah, that sounds like a problem. But yeah. um, I think the key issue is that children are able to gamble. Ah, oh, it yeah. means that the cause gambling under the age of eighteen is illegal in most countries that I'm aware of. And that means that these gambling companies aren't doing enough to filter their audience. They're yeah. somehow allowing children, you know, children, because that's 11 to 16 year olds, they're not yeah. remotely mature enough to gamble. And they're somehow allowing them to use their gambling site. Yeah. And the, the crazy part about it is that um, if, it, if let's say, for example, they ban gambling in um, the Western countries, these company, these gambling companies can supplement their income from other countries like China yeah. to or India or Southeast Asia. Yeah. And the BBC article does um, identify that the um, uh, it identifies that foreign companies are the ones doing this. So it doesn't really, you know. It's hard to stop from happening, but uh, sorry, not the BBC article, the next web article. It's hard to stop it from happening, but what um, they should do is ban the companies from operating in the UK unless they meet UK gambling standards. Yeah. Because you can, you know, you need to be 13 to use Facebook. These companies are targeting kids who aren't even old enough to use Facebook. Yeah. And I think it also comes down to um, the comes down to games companies as well. Like look at EA, FIFA, for example. They are so saturated with uh, microtransactions and gambling like elements as well. Yeah. Yeah. Esport. No, I'm sorry. Microtransactions are basically gambling and an increasing number of countries are actually calling it that. Mm -hmm. So if you go and play a game in Belgium, you won't actually get uh, esport. No, not esports, um, microtransactions. And the reason for that is that they've actually made it illegal. Yeah. Oh, and he here's an interesting thing. Um, EA has put, removed the FIFA microtransactions ad that was uh, that was aimed at kids recently. Huh. Jeez, EA. I would say I'm surprised, but I'm really not. Yeah. If there was any big megacorp that would do that, it would be EA. Oh, yeah, yeah. See that's the other th other interesting thing. What's going to happen with when it comes to problem gamblers in the in, with um in esports would be like uh, 
Um, if microtransactions land in esports, this is gonna microtransactions in esports will be like the next steroids in in, in the sporting field. No, we've already got steroids in esports, which is literally steroids. People are doping in esports. I've I've heard of that, and it doesn't have to be steroids. But um, another common one would be something like Ritalin. Oh no! Helps you with your concentration. So much for the good old days of aim um of target bots and whatnot. People were doing that. <laughs> oh yeah, I remember that guy. I remember that guy who um was using a Word document as a way to cover his tracks. Yeah, <laughs> he had Word. <laughs> On a, a USB drive. <laughs> See, he 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 nearly got it. He nearly got away. <laughs> he nearly got away. Yeah. So esports. I don't know if um, governments need to regulate esports or if esports need to regulate themselves. But uh, something needs to change. Yeah, but the the yeah, I get the whole governments are going to try and regulate esports. Like, but the problem is, which countries are going to say yes to it? Like, you're going to try yeah. and like if you say that to China, like, hey, China, regulate your gambling laws. Uh, China will go like, nah, it'll be fine because they because we have better computers. Oh god, not that one again. <laughs> But yeah, like, but as as I say, like, there's like your biggest your the biggest contributors would be like from China and Southeast Asia, and if you were to tell them like, hey, control your thingy, that's like saying um, that's like saying, hey, don't give us money, just uh, <laughs> stop giving us money. Yeah, Asia does have a lot of um, esports players and a lot of esports professionals and fans. So if the you know if the individual esports leagues aren't going to regulate themselves, if the gambling companies aren't going to regulate themselves, then we need a concerted effort from every country. But that but that being said though, wouldn't that be a bit of a nuclear option though? It would. I'd like to think that the industry can look after itself and that the um government doesn't need to step in. I don't believe that they will though. Just like with loot boxes. Yeah. Um, the industry managed to step in when games were going to be banned for classification laws. Mm-hmm. And they formed a, you know, there's a couple of industry ratings bodies. There's Peggy in the UK, ESRB, most of the rest of the world. So it took the threat of countries banning games because of inappropriate content for game developers to start regulating themselves. So maybe that's what needs to happen. A couple of large countries or significant countries in the esports scene need to declare that they are looking into laws about problem gambling in esports. And then that would get them to come into line. But we can't know that until it happens. Yeah. And the other problem is when when you try and regulate it, it's people will say like, oh, it's an attack on liberty. It's an attack on our rights. Like we can't do this. And yeah. Uh, And also the other problem would be though, like company... Some companies benefit on the whole gambling scene. Like it's it, like if you were to, if, if um if we were to hurt, hurt the um gambling scene in the in affecting the bottom line, they would just go like, okay, you know what? We'll take our stuff and uh, we can just move to another uh, area, another area. Maybe um sports, maybe MMA combat, maybe something like that. So yeah. It's a big international issue, and it's going to be hard to crack down on. How do, you, from a game developer's perspective, what would you do to to, to um, eliminate this sort of problem? Um, I don't know that there's anything that a game developer could do 
to, apart from not use loot boxes, because loot boxes pretty dodgy. Yeah. Um, they, they're targeted at children, especially, and they are akin to gambling. So I think that you probably shouldn't have a, um, you know, you kind of have to have loot, loot boxes to make money because game prices haven't gone up with inflation as much as they should. But loot boxes also open the door to, you know, problem gambling. Yeah. And that's, I think, the extent of what a game developer can do in this scenario. So a game developer can't really say, stop using my game for gambling. People are going to gamble on esports no matter what. Yeah, that's true. And the game developer doesn't have control over the uh, gambling organization. Yeah. And even if he does, though, it will affect, it will affect a lot of things. Like it will affect media companies or affect sponsorships and it's a, yep. it's a it's a can of worms yeah it's not an easy so there's no easy solution and uh speaking of easy solution not no actually speaking of not easy solutions uh we've got a story about uh, a supernova that nearly killed the earth where are we gonna die <laughs> save, save that for november are you voting for giant meteor yeah yeah i was Shame I, I you're would- not american then you can't vote <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, yep, that's true. That's true. So, uh, you've got an interesting story as well, Professor, about this one. Do I? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So, uh, if what you told me was a uh, so in 4.5 billion year history, Earth has turned has run up the gauntlet, numerous catastrophes, and um, such as impacts, volcanic conflagrations, and to fragile episodes of Snowball Earth, yet uh, life persists. Yeah, so as we were talking a few weeks ago about the life on Venus, Mm -hmm. and also last week with Fermi's uh, paradox, there's a lot of things that seem to have to go right for life to survive. And this time, a scientists have discovered a supernova. Uh, Happened about two and a half million years ago, and luckily wasn't aiming at the earth so because of the magnetic field of the star the um, a supernova sends out pulses in particular directions aligned with the the axis of the star's spin and if one of them happens to be pointed at you within range you're screwed i like how uh, one said the uh, one one i one of the quotes is quote if a planet is too close it'll be sterilized or even destroyed yeah actually i read a a really good um, short story recently where some scientists went to investigate a supernova and found evidence of a civilization there that had been wiped out by the supernova uh. and eventually figured out that, you know, this star that was the supernova was the, the star of Bethlehem. <laughs> so one of the scientists is a uh, religious fellow and he's like, you know, why would God blow up an entire civilization to tell us where Jesus was? <laughs> I'm not doing it justice. It's a really good short story. <laughs> oh, that would be funny. <laughs> yeah, it was a really good twist. Mm-hmm. So they're saying here the uh, study from where they got the um, information from is what are called ferromanganese crusts. And these are made of rock, but look more like chocolate cake. Uh, they put deposits of marine sediments uh, that grow over time as iron manganese oxides precipitate out of the seawater. Uh, I found it. So it's the star by um, by Clark. 
Okay. I'll put a link in the show notes. Sure, sure. So, yeah, they um, they keep a record of the chemicals in the source water as they form over time. Besides being a potential source of valuable materials, they're also valuable evidence for scientists. Uh, the team of researchers behind the study examined the sample of the ferromanganese crust that found not only 60FE, but also 53MN. Huh. And uh, 60FE is known as extinct radionuclide. Because of the half-life is 2.6 million years, any 60FE on Earth should be decayed into nickel long ago. Oh, and how long did you say the uh, half-life, half-life of that is? 2.6 million years. That doesn't add up. If the supernova... Oh, they're saying any... Um, yeah, any that existed before this supernova. I was going to point out that since the half-life is only 2.6 million years, we'd expect to see half of the remaining... Um, material left over yeah. from this particular supernova, mm-hmm. which you can tell by looking at the ratio. So you look at the ratio, if you've got half the material remaining in a sample, that means that it was one half-life away, a quarter remaining, uh, two half-lives, and so on. And there's no third half-life because Gabe Newell can't count. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't be so mean. Alex just came out. <laughs> So uh, in their work, the researchers looked at samples of ferromanganese crust of hydrogenetic origin from four different locations in the Pacific Ocean. Two were from the Midway Atoll, one was from the uh, Donizetti Ridge, and the fourth was from the Central Pacific. They ranged in depth from 1,589 meters down to 5,120 meters. And each sampling um, location yielded 15 samples of increasing depth for a total of 60 samples. Hmm. What's going to be interesting about this would be that um, this is going to this could open up a whole new level of archaeology. Yeah, so stellar archaeology, sort of. Um, they're saying that this could actually be linked to the ice ages. So cosmic rays can alter the climate. And one of the authors of this paper. Uh, theorizes that the ice ages, which began about 2.6 million years ago, might be related to that. So just knowing that the uh, supernova happened near us even 2.6 million years ago helps teach us about how stars form, how they live, how they die. It's possible also that the supernova is related to the Pliocene marine megafauna extinction. So, yeah, there's definitely things that this... uh, supernova could have had an effect on on earth i wonder which i wonder which extinction um event number was this one though because we had because earth if i recall had dozens of uh extinction events in the i think we identify five or six of them uh we've got here we go so yeah yeah um the holocene extinction is the one caused by humans the past uh, tens of thousands of years since human civilization formed. And even before that, humans have had a really bad effect on uh, biodiversity. So the Holocene extinction is the sixth one identified. But there could be others, of course, that haven't been identified. Like the uh, the paper linked for the Pliocene marine megafauna extinction was only published in 2017 and says that it identified a previously unrecognized extinction event. Mm. So this, so this discovery is just basically scratching the surface to look more into yeah. the extinction events. Yeah, there's a whole bunch. So um, 
So, so that the well, the Holocene extinction is a mass extinction. So, Wikipedia has a article list of extinction events, which lists a whole bunch, but with the um, the six mass extinctions mark. So, we've got of the uh, it even has causes. So, we've got the Holocene extinction caused by humans. Mm-hmm. Go back a couple of million years, it lists the uh, Pliocene extinction caused possibly by a supernova, or they theorize possibly an asteroid impact. Then you can keep going back. You've got KT, which is the extinction of the dinosaurs. Further back, there's a couple of uh, extinction of dinosaurs that didn't completely wipe them out, like the Triassic-Jurassic and the Permian-Triassic as major events. Mm. And even before then, the Devonian extinction and way, way back, 450 to 440 million years ago, the ordovician silurian extinction event. And way back, the oldest one they list is the Great Oxygenation Event. Because uh, I've talked about this before, but um, life on Earth hasn't always been oxygen metabolizing. Up until uh, 2,400 million years ago, life on Earth created oxygen as a waste product. And some of that still survives, particularly the um, stromatolites, which are made out of cyanobacteria, which release oxygen. The issue being that oxygen reaches a particular uh, yeah, a particular percentage in the atmosphere and kills off the life forms that produce it. Just like CO2 is reaching a particular level in the atmosphere and killing <laughs> off the life forms that produce it, but in a different way. See, that's, also, that's going to be interesting with the whole supernova um, event. Is that um, how would gl- will the, will we see a bigger push for climate change and uh, and global warming because of this? Um, well, human caused climate change isn't in doubt. The last hundred and fifty years since the industrial revolution uh, has a massive increase in CO two emissions and CO two levels and global temperature. But it's not the only time that the climate has changed. And life has gotten through the previous climate changes, not always as in a form that is recognizable from the previous. So a couple of the extinction events linked in that article are climate change extinctions. So rapid climate change happens faster than a life form can adapt to it and kills it off. We're currently doing that by pumping out tons of CO2 and raising the temperature. Even just a few degrees is enough to really mess with things. But I don't think there's any doubt that a supernova or other stellar event is causing the um, recent climate change. I hope so. I hope, I hope so. Well, we, yeah, we- because it would be nice to know. I mean, it's not nice to know that it's our fault, but it's nice to know that there's something we can do about it. Yeah. If a supernova caused a um, climate change event, then there might not be anything we could do to survive it. Oh, the, uh, the Little Ice Age in the medieval ages was caused by a volcanic eruption. There's a couple of times in fairly recent history that the temperature has changed significantly because of a volcanic eruption, but only just for a few years, then it evens out once the ash falls from the atmosphere. But, you know, at least uh, we know that there's ways we could mitigate this rather than having an event that there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of a, a, an event that, could, that we couldn't do anything about it, and thanks to, that, uh, thanks to an unspecified illness of unknown origin, um, we've got some movie delays. Uh, good. <laughs> uh, because of the, uh, because of this unspecified illness, a couple of movies have been 
uh, 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 going up in um, release dates and going down in release dates. Uh, for example, the Batman, for example, it's going to be delayed. And uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be delayed to uh, October the 1st, 2021, which was original the original release date. Now it's set for March the 4th, 2022. And uh, Dune fans prepare to cry. Uh, this movie is not going to be coming out on December 18th this year, but it'll be moved to October 1st, 2021. Yep, yep. I'm still not, still haven't come to um, accept that. Still going through the phases of grief. <laughs> which, which phase are you up to now? Anger. <laughs> Why? <laughs> So uh, a source uh, has said that uh, they're confident that the marketplace could support multiple tent poles as it has every year around around the holidays, but with no vaccine in sight, Americans have remained reluctant to return to theaters, even though no new COVID-19 cases have been traced back to the cinemas. Uh, yes, what, it's unfortunate that the um, the UK and the US cinemas are the defining factor for this because we've got a pretty under control in Australia. Do we though? Do we? I mean, look yeah. at Melbourne and Sydney though. <laughs> yeah, it's still pretty under control. We have a fairly manageable number of daily cases. We haven't had any cases in Queensland in a few days. Thank God. Luckily, no. Although yeah, actually no, there was a ca- there was a positive case yesterday, and they found it through the sewers. Bizarrely. Okay. Yeah. No, that makes sense because the uh, viral shedding shows up in feces. Mm-hmm. It's also a way that the um you can track drug use in the population. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so there's so a other- lot that shows up in poo. But yeah, there are some other movies that have also been delayed as well. Uh, the new Matrix that's going to be. Um, coming out on December 22nd, 2021. Um, as I said, the Batman's com- coming out in 2022. The Flash movie comes out on November 4th, 2022. Uh, Shazam! Fury of the Gods, June the 2nd, 2023. Uh, the recent Black Adam movie that everyone was hyped for on DC Fandom. That's been Black now... Adam. Adam. Oh. <laughs> I haven't heard of a Black Adam movie. I didn't know Rowan Atkinson was still doing that. <laughs> well, I wish Hugh Laurie was in that movie too. Uh, that's been too. De- that, that's uh, un- undated, and even the Minecraft movie has also been um, undated now. Uh, but uh, also, Wonder Woman 1984 is going to be released. Um, it's still set to be released on Christmas Day this year. So this is going to be this is going to be interesting. So the next big movie is going to be Wonder Woman. Yep. Okay. Well, I'm disappointed it's not going to be June, but I also want to make sure June gets the best shot it has because, um, well, we're only getting sort of half of the first book. It's a self-contained story in itself, but it is still only half of the first book. And plus, look at look at it this way. It's like getting an extension with the assignment. They can add in new footage and stuff. Yeah. I mean, if principal photography hasn't completed, then... Well, yeah. considering we're two months out from release, I think it probably would be. Yeah. Like, I don't know what gets done in the past, uh, in the last two months of a movie, but it's not exactly a whole lot of time, considering movies take several years to come out. Although... It's interesting. Uh, it's interesting because I th- uh, they said that they wrapped up filming uh, last year. So okay, maybe do a bit more CGI work, get things looking a bit nicer. Yeah, yeah. But that's a, that's that's what's ha- that's 
what's going to kill Hollywood now because of this unspecified disease? Like, Why it's... are we referring it to as an unspecified disease? <laughs> I just love to say that. It's an unspecified disease it's of unknown Voldemort. orange. You can say its name. <laughs> I prefer not to, okay? <laughs> but, um, yeah, I find it amazing how this, this disease has... Ki- has put Hollywood on ransom now. Yeah, and the ransom is everyone else behaving. <laughs> People would behave and wear their mask. Hollywood would be open. Because they don't. Hollywood is closed. <laughs> yeah, now Hollywood's just relying on uh, on streaming now. So that's going to be interesting. Can you imagine Hollywood cinemas being uh, di- dying because of this problem. Yeah. Be like, bye-bye cinemas, hello streaming services. Although, would you, would you how would you react if uh, Dune was to, go, was to go like, okay, we're not going to release it in cinemas, we're going to release this on Netflix? Um, I would prefer it to release in cinemas because it's a, a big movie and it's Dene, Dene Villeneuve? Uh, How do you Dene, pronounce it? Denis Villeneuve. Yeah, Villeneuve. Yeah, yeah, but it's French, so you got to pronounce it with a weird... You know, you can't just say the letters that are on the screen. It's French, <laughs> so you got to drop half the letters and add a bunch of others. So, and I did see a video recently where he explained how to say his name. But anyway, Dennis or Dene, however you say it, uh, his other movies are incredible cinema experiences because of his cinematography and his um, yeah, his general work is just so good on big screen. I'm really disappointed I didn't get to see uh, Blade Runner 2049 on big screen. And I'd rather see June on big screen than on my desktop or my laptop because it. Um, I think it will really benefit from the, the screen quality. So I would accept it if it comes out on uh, on streaming, but I would love it to come out not on streaming. Yeah, that's true. That's fair. But, an, but one sort of uh, franchise that'll be interesting to see on the big screen is uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s uh, pet project, which is... A Sherlock Holmes cinematic universe. And specifically the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes movies that didn't get (laughs) great reviews. Uh, I I, I don't know. I'm speechless on this one. I mean, this is what they... Okay, so on IMDb, it does have 7.5 out of 10 for uh, Sherlock Holmes Game of Shadows. So it's better than I remember hearing about. I remember people just didn't like it, but maybe it is um, more popular than I thought. But it does hit me as uh, who asked for this? Uh, yeah, <laughs> because so- it's been nine years, and the um, like Avatar is getting a sequel after even longer. But they let us know they were going to make that sequel basically as soon as Avatar came out. But it's- so. <laughs> Yeah. So where is this coming from? So this is coming from uh, a keynote panel at the Fast Company Innovation Festival on uh, Monday, last Monday, where uh, Robert Downey Jr., his wife, uh, producer Susan Downey, they were speaking with moderator and Fast Company editor-in-chief Stephanie Mehta. And they were talking, and they talk about the uh, company's plans to build a Sherlock Holmes franchise after working closely with Marvel mogul Kevin Feige for over a decade. So uh, Robert Downey Jr. Ba- uh, says this: At this point, we really feel that this is, there is a there is not a mystery reverse um, built built out anywhere, and Conan Doyle is the definitive voice in that arena. 
I think t- to this day. And uh, so to me, th- why do a third movie if you're, do- if you're not going to be able to spin off some real, real gems of diversity and other times of, of other times and elements? I mean, hey, I'm yeah, I'm 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 kind of echoing your question. Why? Who is this? Go- who is this movie going to be made for? And we already had like a kind of like a, a um yeah um uh, well a, 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 how many back? Sherlock yeah. Holmes franchises have we had since Robert Downey Jr. If I recall, like two, the uh, Benedict Cumberbatch um is it Cumberbatch or Cumberbatch? Cumberbatch. Cumberbatch. Okay, we had the Benedict Cumberbatch um, Sherlock Holmes series, and we had the recent Anola Holmes series, which there's also Elementary, which has an American Bond. Not oh yeah. Bond. What did I say? Bond Holmes. <laughs> an <Yeah>. American Holmes. <laughs> Actually, was yeah. it an American Holmes? I know it had a female Watson. Yeah, I think it's. I think it was. Um, it was set in America, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was set in America, but yeah. Uh, but uh, but yeah, like, why do we need another Sherlock Holmes series? Like, Money. Um, yeah. Um, so his wife also came out saying, um, we think that there's an opportunity to build build it out more. Susan added, spin off characters from the from a third movie to see what's going on in the television landscape to see what Warner Media is starting to build out things with HBO and HBO Max. So okay. I, I just think like we, but we like who's going to be the okay if they were to do this like as a Marvel sort of franchise who's going to be the big bad guy because Moriarty in the fa- in, in the um in, in the Sherlock Holmes universe is the big bad guy and they already killed him in the th- in the second movie just bring him back to life <laughs> yeah that will yeah that that will be that would be a great game of cat and mouse like oh Sherlock Holmes you caught Moriarty again yeah he was trying to resurrect himself. <laughs> no, just make it like um, make it like Scooby Doo. Have every movie end with him pulling off the mask and finding Moriarty. <laughs> and I wouldn't have gotten away if, if it wasn't for you, Middle League Doctor, Middle League uh, Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> oh, and um, what else was there? There were some really interesting lines here. Like there was another one saying, "We're not repeaters. We don't want to just do what we've been, what we've done elsewhere, um, somewhere else." He said. But I think the model itself has become much more d- dimensionalized than it was before. <laughs> this was um, this was after. So he announced the whole thing um, during the event, and uh, HBO's already greenlit a second season of Perry Mason, where he and Susan have big plans for an early detective universe. So a universe spanning across movies and TV series, and who else? Who knows else? What? Yeah. Okay then. <laughs> I don't know what they'll spin off though. Like, uh, are they going to be other de- detectives like Enola Holmes? Is Watson going to get his own series? See, I would love to see a Watson series. That would be great. Like that would be fun. That would be fun to watch. Like, how was Watson like before he met Holmes? Kind of. Yeah, I don't know if that's uh, covered in the official books. The other, the other thing will be interesting is how, whether the um the Holmes estate will be open to that idea as well. Because Do they have to be? I mean, I thought the, Holmes was public domain now, or at I least some so, of it was. I thought so too until the uh, Enola, until the Holmes estate decided to sue um, Netflix's uh, show Enola Holmes over the betrayals. Okay, yeah. So some of the um, most of uh, of Arthur Conan Doyle stuff is off copyright, but the um, 
couple of them are still in copyright, which is why um, Holmes Estate thinks they have a right to sue uh, Netflix. The so the issue is that the Holmes from the you know had character development. So the Holmes in the early book books was uh, the you know he's kind of high functioning autistic. He doesn't have a lot of emotions he doesn't care much for social niceties but he does learn to fit in over the course of the stories so the later stories are the um ones that enola holmes is based on and that's why they sued the other interesting question would be um like why do it this now and who are they going to cater it to like are they going to cater it to like the um the sherlock holmes fans or are they just going to cater it to like the um to, uh, to to ju- to just pop culture fans kind of thing like are we gonna like uh, like are we gonna see like an Iron Man mask in 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 a Sherlock Holmes movie kind of thing? I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen Robert Downey Jr. in much recently. Does he actually play characters, or is he like Johnny Depp and only plays his one character? Well, in is in Sherlock Holmes the first one, he he acted like this. Um, he, he acted a bit like Johnny Depp in terms of yes, I am this um very interesting guy. I'm I'm quirky and um ama- and amazing at the same time. And you see that with Iron Man as well. Like you see Iron Man first, and then you see it with Sherlock Holmes. It's kind of like and and you'll see with um what's that uh, Doolittle movie as well. Like he's quirky, enigmatic, and uh, and eccentrically um smart. Like it's. T- I feel like this is a this is he's getting typecasted into these roles. Okay, but I I wish this I, I wish the franchise good luck. I mean, we've got too many superhero superhero um yeah movies lately. I mean, don't make we- him too superhero. Like in the um, other Robert Downey Jr. movies, he's basically unstoppable. But I think um you know Holmes is human. He's very smart, but he doesn't um like he shouldn't be able to win any fight he gets into. Unfortunately, that's the way the Robert Downey Jr. Holmes is, so I don't think I'm going to like this one. A good change from all the Marvel movies, the DC movies. Yeah, it'll be a nice change if they make him different from, you know, um, Iron Man. Yeah, but that's the other interesting thing, like, because detective move, all detective movies have kind of been resurging a bit. Like, what well, we had the Kenneth Branigan movies coming out recently. Like they had the murder of the Nile Express, is that the one? Orient Express. That's the one. Yep. Yeah, murder in the Orient Express, and I think Kenneth Branagh again. I think played as Poirot in that one. Now he's coming back for another murder in the Nile. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. See, I would love to see. See, that's an interesting. That's another interesting one as well. Like they're bringing back Poirot and making it into a series as well. He's been a series for decades. Oh yeah, he's been a series for a decade, but not a cinematic series though. Like a big, yeah. Big, big budget movie kind of thing but yeah yeah i only time will tell only time will tell i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. So, uh, Professor, what game have you been playing? I've been playing some more Fall Guys. <laughs> the second season just came out. Ooh. Which is medieval themed. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 
So it's got a new uh, egg scramble map called Egg Siege. So all the maps are new maps are themed. Uh, there's Egg Egg Siege where you just basically just a modified version of the existing egg scramble with different obstacles. Uh, Night Fever, which has a bunch of like swinging axes and new obstacles in it, including Thick Bonkers. <laughs> that i was like yeah. what? <laughs> they really go hard with the memes when naming their uh their things and apparently they put this one up for a poll and one of the losing contributions was spiky mikey which i like more <laughs> but they have uh thick bonkers and big geetus <laughs> it's like um, that um it, it's like that uh they named the ship Bodie mcbugface yeah so there's also uh wall guys which is an odd sort of semi-cooperative one. So there are obstacles that are um, too high for a single player to jump over. So you work together to stack up boxes to make a stairway. The uh, biggest flaw you've encountered in this uh, new season? Uh, I seem to be having a lot more server issues, which possibly is because so many people are playing right now, like when it first came out. Hmm. But it does come with a um, a nice new set of uh, well, graphical updates and stuff for different levels. That it the existing levels have had a bit of a, a bit of polish put on them. Uh, there's also Hoopsie Legends, which is a um, there's Hoopsie Daisy, which is a um, a team based game where you jump through a uh, jump through hoops to score points. And now they've added Hoopsie Legends, which is a single player version of that adding in the new elements from the Knights update. Yeah, I'm a bit annoyed. I was going to make level 40. I had plenty of times, but uh, plenty of time to do it. But the I got disconnected so often in the last day that I just couldn't do it. Oh. Yeah. But the game is still, but the game is still pretty popular though. I mean, yeah. There's nothing, there's nothing like there's nothing there's no other competitor that's matching in the, in terms of memberships for this game. No. So I'm hoping they um, like they are definitely an active dev team, and I expect they'll probably push out a um, balance patch to fix some of the bugs and eventually uh, get things sorted out so that the game is actually more playable. Sure. sure. Uh, how would how much would you rate this game? How many nerdy beanies? I'd still give it four out of five. I've been um, playing Among Us. And yes, two. Yep, still. Hey, it, it, I will say this: this game is is just an exercise in how to gaslight people. Yeah, <laughs> like you, you gotta keep uh, you gotta keep second guessing. I mean, like how many uh, like um, were they were they in the admin or were they not in the admin or were they doing the tasks that you that they were assigned to or were they not doing the tasks? Like, like I want like I would love to see a little like a mini game in the voting process. Like, let's say if um if you go if you're down to like four people and you couldn't you couldn't you couldn't vote they should introduce a russian roulette um mini game maybe they could uh break out um tasers like you at the end of it uh go full aliens and give you weapons or something <laughs> i don't know how they would balance that but that would be just randomly off the top of my head that's a cool idea yeah. i'm sure it's not balanced at all but you know hire me people <laughs> It'd be it'd be a very really nice addition. I mean, for Halloween purpose, for Halloween and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I hope they we get a season two for Among Us. Like, when we get some new maps or yeah, um... well, they've announced that. So oh, they actually uh, a couple of weeks ago cancelled Among Us two oh. and decided they would roll it back into Among Us one. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think I heard about that. My biggest flaw with this game is sometimes um the sc- the uh sc- the screen glitches and uh I I think I had your scenario once upon a time as well in terms of uh you you're dead but, te- but then you come back to life bizarrely. Yeah, it's horribly buggy. Yeah. Yeah. If they I've had rid- several times where um either when someone calls a meeting and it's supposed to teleport you, it doesn't teleport you or I've been killed but playing as a ghost i'm still alive and then i get killed again <laughs> so yeah i was actually the uh, the last human in a well at least the last human to die in a match recently um and i was playing on discord with my friends and we went to a meeting and they're like why aren't you saying anything you're alive yeah and i'm like no in the end the killer ended up killing me again and that ended the round and I've had another where I was doing a job in, um, I don't remember the name of the map, Mirror, I think. I was doing a job on that map in, in the reactor room. A meeting was called. I didn't go to the meeting. I finished my job. And then I was stuck, paralyzed, until the meeting finished. <laughs> oh, that's gonna suck. Yeah, it was annoying because everyone's like, it was, it was red. And I was like, wait, are we voting? I'm doing my job. What's going on? Anyways, um, I give I give Among Us a uh, four out of five. Like I said, it's okay. it's, an, it, it's an addictive game. <sighs> so uh, onto our shoutouts. On the 9th of October, twenty twenty, um, the Nobel Prize winners have been announced. So uh, Nobel Prize season uh, begins every October as committees in Norway and Sweden name laureates in a variety of prizes in the sciences, literature, and economics, as well as peace work. The prizes uh, most years are presented to recipients in Stockholm and Oslo, but because of this unspecified illness of unknown origin, the uh, committees are changing their approaches. So they'll be doing the award ceremony in 2021. And they've also announced another change, which is that the prize is raised to 10 million Swedish krona, which is 1 million more than last year. Um, Damn, i got to get myself a Nobel Prize. That's a hike in the prize vault of about 112,000 in current exchange rates. So it's not that much. (laughs) So um, you've heard about the the Peace Prize winner, haven't you, Professor? Uh, I've heard a lot about the winners. I don't remember who was the Peace Prize off the top of my head, though. Uh, The Peace Prize winner was uh, given to the World Food Program for, for its efforts in combating a surge in global hunger. Cool. I can get behind food. Food's good. Yep. Uh, for the Nobel Prize in Medicine, it was the discovery of the hepatitis C virus. And the committee said that the three scientists had made po- possible blood tests and new medicines that have saved millions of lives. The uh, physics one is pretty cool too. It was uh, the discovery that has improved the understanding of the universe, including the work on black holes. Who did that one go to? That went to... Roger Penrose, Reinhard uh, Genzel, and Andrea Gears. Ah, uh, yes, Penrose. Um, actually, the Royal Institution published some uh, talks by him, or at least linked to them the other day. I'll throw them in the show notes. But he's the one behind the, the Penrose stairs illusion. Huh. And for the uh, Nobel Prize in Chemistry, it was for the work in the development of CRISPR, Cas9, a method of genome editing. Congratulations to all. On the uh, 2nd of October 2020, uh, Maxi-Mars, a mini-moon, and meteors light up the October night sky. Mars will be at its closest to Earth 
on um, October 6th, 1410 Universal, Universal Time. Depending on which Australian time zone you live in, that will be either late Tuesday night or early Wednesday morning on October 7th, which is already passed. Um, this will be uh, this t- this will be on for the next few days. Yeah, I believe it's 10 days that before it goes back to normal. Yeah. And there's an internet, there's an internet hoax uh, that has been doing the rounds that every time Mars reaches its closest point, uh, but from where we're standing, Mars is more than 60 times smaller than the moon. So Mars and Earth come close to get close to each other, close to each other every few, every two years. So wait, what's the hoax? Uh, that you'll be bigger than the moon, that, that uh, Mars will be bigger than the moon. Oh, okay. And the, even a mini moon. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, pretty obviously wrong. Mm-hmm. Mars is bigger than the moon physically, but it is too far away to uh, appear larger than the moon. Yep. So yeah, Mars continues to get brighter and brighter until Wednesday, October 14th, when it reaches the opposition. In other words, it is in direct line with Earth and the Sun. On the 6th of October, 2020, uh, 60th anniversary of Spartacus premiered in the Mill Theatre, New York City. So uh, Spartacus, uh, the American epic adventure film released in 1960 that recounts the story of a historical slave of uprising against Rome. The movie, which starred Kirk Douglas and was directed by Stanley Kubrick, won widespread critical acclaim. The contract between the theater and Universal Pictures include a $1 million rental minimum, the highest ever for a movie. After the film's premiere, the studio bowed to pressure and removed the suggestive bath scene with homosexual overtones, including Oliver and Tony Curtis. Hmm, different times back then. Uh-huh. Ah, too bad they want the real Spartacus. We are all Spartacus on this blessed day. On the 6th of October 2020, Eddie Van Halen passes away at 65. The uh, guitarist band leader has died. His band, Van Halen, spanned more than four decades, 12 albums, three lead singers, and some of the most dramatic guitar solos in rock and roll history. His iconic guitar, named Frankenstein, was pieced together to his personal specifications in 1975 from the components of other instruments, a $50 body, a $70, a $75 neck, a single humbucker pickup, and crucial tro- tremolo band, uh, tremolo bar. With a red surface crisscrossed frantically with black and white stripes and traffic reflectors stuck to the back, it remains one of the most recognizable guitars in rock and roll history. The idea was to stretch out and get loud, he once said, as he referenced the fictional metal act Spinal Tap, whose members bragged on camera that their amplifiers went all the way to 11. While they're going to 11, Van Halen joked during a 2015 appearance at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., uh, DC. I was already going to 15. Uh, he died from cancer in Santa Monica, California. Man, what a legend. 6th of October 2020, Johnny Nash passes away at 80. Uh, Johnny Nash, a singer, songwriter, actor, and producer who's, who rose from pop crooner to early reggae star to the creator and performer of the million selling anthem I Can Sleep Clearly Now has died. Uh, reportedly written by Nash while recovering from cataract surgery. I can see clearly now was a story of overcoming hard times that itself raised the spirits of countless listeners while its swelling pop reggae groove promised of a bright, of a bright, bright sunny day. And Nash's gospel styled exclamation midway, look straight ahead, nothing but blue skies, a backing chorus lifting the words into the heavens. A decade later, he, um, he was co-running a record company 
had become a rare, rare American-born singer of reggae and helped launch the career of his friend Bob Marley. Nash praised the vibes of this little island while speaking of Jamaica, and he was among the first artists to bring reggae to U.S. audiences. He died from natural causes in Houston, Texas. On to our remembrances. On the 6th of October 1951, William uh, Will Keith Kellogg, American industrialist in food manufacturing, best known as the founder of Kellogg Company, which to this day produces a wide variety of popular breakfast cereals. Later, he found the Kellogg Arabian branch and made it a renowned establishment of breeding of Arabian horses. Kellogg started the Kellogg Foundation in 1934, and with $66 million in Kellogg company stock investments, a donation would, that would be worth over a billion dollars in today's economy. So yeah, he started the uh, he, he started this breakfast cereal company and they with his brother, and they both argued over um, ad- adding sugar to the products. And so after the argument in 1906, Will found the Battle Creek Toast... Toasted Cornflake Company, Ugh, words, which later became the uh, Kellogg Company. So uh, he d- so uh, he died from heart failure at the age of ninety one in Battle Creek, Michigan. Oh, and also an an interesting fact: his company was the f- first one to put the nutrition labels on foods. Then it just makes up for all the other craziness. Mm-hmm. On the sixth of September, nineteen eighty six, Alexander Conrad, Alexander Seminovich Conrad, a Soviet mathematician and computer scientist, best known for the Gauss Conrad quadrature formula, which he published in nineteen sixty four. He's also known for his contributions to economics, specifically for proposing corrections and calculating uh, price formation for the USSR. Later, Conrad gave his fortune and life to medicine to care for terminally, terminal ca- cancer patients. Uh, cancer patients, sorry. Uh, he's remembered for his captivating personality and was admired as a student, teacher, and leader. He played an important role in uh, building the first major Russian computer, which is the relay computer RVM1. He's well known for saying chess is the dorosophilia of artificial intelligence. And uh, he spent his fortune de- developing Millie from a sour milk extract for cancer patients to fill a shortage of an- Anabol, an expensive drug developed in small quantities by, the, by his executives Bogdan Danov in Bulgaria. So this was a uh, last resort to treating seriously ill patients and was administered by physicians. He never gave, Conrad never gave the drug to patients and through physicians gave it away for free. Uh, the drug was unapproved and a criminal case was brought against him. He regained his research records when a relative of the plaintiff required Millie for treatment and the case was dismissed. He died from a stroke at the age of 64 in Moscow. Uh, 6th of October 2017, David Marks. David Joseph Marks, a uh, British architect and the designer of the London Eye, the British Airways uh, I-360 Observation Tower in Brighton, and the treetop walkway at Kew Gardens, London. In 1993, an article in the Sunday Times invited readers to develop a monument for the dawn of a new era. So that's where they designed the uh, London Eye. And uh, the first time they gave it to the Sunday Times, uh, nobody, won it. nobody won the competition, so they went it. They went back to the drawing board, and uh, and I think they won it afterwards. I like that we've got our own knockoff London Eye in Brisbane, <laughs> and that they make uh, movies set in London and just use Brisbane as a standard. <laughs> the most egregious is the uh, K9 TV series, 
which featured a bunch of Australian teenage actors doing terrible British accents. Aww. And the scene where the eye was hijacked by terrorists. So they um, <laughs> yeah, they used footage of the area around the Brisbane wheel. So, yeah, they uh, decided... So Mark and, ba- and his wife Barfield decided to build it themselves, and they unfortunately sold their stake in the London Eye last year. And Fortunately one- or unfortunately, how much money did they make? I think they might have... Wa- they might not have made a lot of money because uh, they're one third one third owners of it, along with British Airways and the Tussauds Group, which operated the structure. Okay. Uh, he was appointed MBE in the two thousand years honor uh, New Year's honors, and uh, he died from cancer at the age of sixty four. On to our famous birthdays, and on the sixth of October, eighteen forty six, George Westinghouse was born. An American entrepreneur, engineer based in Pennsylvania, who created the Railway air brake and was pioneer of the electrical industry, receiving his face first patent at the age of nineteen. Westinghouse saw the potential of the use of using alternating currents for electrical power distribution in the early eighteen eighties and put all his resources into developing and marketing it. This put Westinghouse's business in direct competition with Thomas Edison, who marketed direct current for electrical power distribution. And at the age of twenty two, he invented the railroad braking system using compressed air. And uh, he was also interested in gas distribution and telephone switching, which led him to become interested in then new field of electrical power distribution in the early 1880s. Electrical lighting was a growing business with many companies building outdoor direct current and alternating current arc um, lighting-based lighting systems. So he, in 1893, he won the bid to um, light the 1893 World Col- Columbian Exposition in Chicago with alternating current. Slightly underbidding General Electric to get the contract. It was a key event in history of AC power, as Westinghouse demonstrated the safety, reliability, and efficient efficiency of a fully integrated alternating current system to the American public. He was born in Central Bridge, New York. On the 6th of October, 1893, Meghnad Sahar, Indian astrophysicist who developed the Sahar ionization equation used to describe chemical and physical conditions in stars. His work allowed astronomers to accurately relate the spectral classes of stars to their actual temperatures. Sahar's study of the thermal ionization of elements led to him to formulate what is known as the Sahar equation, which is the basic tools for interpreting the spectra of stars in astrophysics. He also invented an instrument to measure the weight and pressure of solar rays and helped to build um, several scientific instruments, such uh, scientific inst- institutions, sorry such as a uh, physics department at Allahabad University and the Institute of Nuclear Physics in Calcutta. He actively participated in parliament in areas of education, refugee and rehabilitation, atomic en- energy, multipurpose river projects and flood control, and long-term planning. He was born in Saratoli, da- Dhaka, Bengal Presidency. Quite, a, quite an interesting man. Yeah. 6th of October, 1903, Ernest Walton. Ernest Thomas Sinton Walton, an Anglo-Irish physicist, Nobel laureate for his work with John John Cockroft with atom-smashing experiments done at Cambridge University in the early 1930s and so become the first person in history to split the atom. During the early 1930s, Walton and John Cockroft uh, collaborated to build an apparatus that split the nuclei of lithium atoms by bombarding them with a stream of protons accelerated inside a high-voltage tube. The splitting of the lithium nuclei produced helium nuclei. This experiment verification of theories 
least experimental verification of theories about atomic structure that had been proposed earlier by Rutherford, George Gamow, and others. The successful apparatus, a type of particle accelerator now called the Cockcroft-Walton generator. It helped usher in the particle accelerator-based experimental nuclear physics. He was born in Abbeyside, Dungarvan. And uh, on to our events of interest, the 6th of October, 1866, the Reno brothers carry out the first train robbery in U.S. history. So uh, they made. So the Reno brothers made their first train robbery, making off with a, with thirteen thousand from an Ohio and Mississippi railroad train in Jackson County, Indiana. Of course, the trains had been robbed before the Reno brothers hold up, but their previous cr- crimes ha- had all been burglaries of stationary trains sitting in depots or freight yards. The Reno brothers' contribution to criminal history was to stop a moving train in a sparsely re- populated region where they could carry out their crime without risking interference from law or curious bystanders. Though created in Indiana, the Reno brothers' new methods of robbing trains quickly became popular in the West, and many bandits copied the method. (laughs) Uh, Some crime gangs, like Butch Cassidy's Wild Bunch, found that robbing trains was so easy and lucrative that for a time they made it their criminal speciality. As a result, by the 19th century, train robbery was becoming increasingly difficult and dangerous profession. Imagine trying to tr- try and do that now. I reckon it'd be fun. I've got a weekend project. <laughs> Let's rob it. Yeah, but what train would you, would you want to rob though? <laughs> like- That's a good question. It's mostly coal and cattle through here. <laughs> On the uh, 6th of October 1927, opening of The Jazz Singer, the first prominent talkie movie. The premiere was set for October 6, 1927 at Warner Brothers' flagship theatre in New York City. In keeping with the film's theme of a conflict within the Jewish family, the film premiered after sunset on the eve of Yom Kippur holiday. According to Doris, uh, Doris Warner, who was in attendance about halfway through the film, she began to feel feel that something exceptional was taking place. Suddenly, Jolson's face appeared in a big close-up and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, you ain't heard nothing yet. Jolson's wait a minute line prompted a loud positive ex- positive response from the audience who were dumbfounded by seeing and hearing someone speak on a film for the first time. So much so that the double... Antandre was missed at first. Applause followed each of his songs, excitement built, and when Jolson and Eugenia Bessier began their dialogue scene, the audience became hysterical. After the show, the audience started to, uh, turned into a milling, battling mob in one journalist's description, chanting, Jolson, Jolson, Jolson. <laughs> Among those who reviewed the film, the critic who foresaw most, cl- most clearly what uh, what it presa- presaged for the future of cinema was Life Magazine's Robert E. Sherwood. He described the spoken dialogue scene between Jolson and Basir as fraught with tremendous significance. I, for one, suddenly realized that the end of the silent drama is in sight. Oh, maybe Man, I'm in- dumb, but I don't get the double entendre in that line. <laughs> I think it was just the moment, like, you know, like... We always we always like uh, see silent footage, and all of a sudden, my God, this moment of him speaking. Yeah, I don't think you know what a double entendre is. 
No, I don't think so either. <laughs> On the 6th of October 1995, the first planet orbiting around the sun, 51 Pegasi B, is discovered. The exoplanet's discovery was announced on October 6, 1995 by Michael Mayer and Didier Quelos at the University of Geneva in the journal Nature. They used the radio velocity method of the Lodi spectro- spectrograph on the Observatory de Haute Provence telescope in France and made world headlines with their, dis- with their announcement. For their discovery, they were awarded the 2019 Nobel Prize in Physics. The planet was discovered using a sensitive spectroscope that could detect the slight uh, and regular velocity changes in the star's spectral lines of about of around 70 meters per second. Once astronomers realized that what it was worth looking for giant planets with the currently available technology, much more telescope time was devoted to re- radial velocity planet searches and hence more, many more exoplanets in the sun's neighborhood were discovered. Cool name though, by the way. Yeah, and I found out that the star that it orbits might actually supernova soon. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to have, have a case of history repeating itself. It happens every day. <laughs> well, uh, to quote Phil Jupiter, real life is stoked with irony. <laughs> Uh, and finally, on the 6th of October t- 2007, Jason Lewis completes the first human-powered circumnavigation of the Earth. So Lewis set off with friend and fellow adventurer Stevie Smith from Greenwich, London, on 12th of July 1994 to complete the world's first human-powered circumnavigation, and the two dubbed the journey Expedition 360. By July 2007, Lewis had traveled over 60,000 kilometers, which is 37,000 miles. He successfully ended his 4,833-day expedition on 6th of October 2007, having traveled 74,842 kilometers, which is 46,505 miles. Pulling Moscow in tow, Lewis crossed the Greenwich Meridian Line, which where he began his expedition 13 years earlier. During his expedition, Lewis twice survived malaria, sepsis, a bout of mild schizophrenia, and a crocodile attack near Australia in 2005. As part of a wider interest in sustainability and education, Lewis had visited more than 900 schools in 37 countries, giving talks to students and traveling them in a variety of programs to develop to promote world citizenship, zero carbon emissions travel, and awareness of consumption habits on the health of the planet. That is a long time, from 1994 till 2007. Yeah, probably would have been faster if he hadn't had so many setbacks. <laughs> well, the, the, medical, the schizophrenia, I bet you, might have taken him a while to get, to get over it. Anyways, uh, that's all we have for this week. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Spotify, iTunes. That's not canon.com, where we're an archive of our old episodes. Um, you can also find us on Pod Hero, where you can support us for $5 a month, split between all the podcasts that you listen to on Pod Hero. So uh, take care of each other, stay hydrated, and root. We'll see you next time. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.